Hello and welcome to Ice Age Prep Reads Season 2, World in Peril by Ken White. This will be the third installment, and again will be three chapters, uh, 7, 8, and 9. Thank you all again for joining me and listening to and discovering newly with me this book. This is a PDF that I got off of archive.org, the Internet Archive. Um, I'm not sponsored by them at all. Um, I just like to mention where I got my source from in case anybody wants to get it themselves. And in particular with this book, uh, there are a lot of illustrations. And um, I can kind of describe them as we come across them, but it's probably best to view them for yourself. Um, so you can, that's where you can get that. Or if you can find a hard copy, you can do that as well. Um, I haven't priced this book in a while. Anyway, I digress. Um, yeah, thanks for joining us. We're going to do three chapters today, and uh, um, so let's just get it going. Chapter 7, The Background of the 46th First Polar Flight. Washington Post, June 14, 1946. U.S. can keep Adam's secret, Barack insists, June 15th. Soviets accused U.S. of seeking arms control. June 17th, Reds attack U.S. secrecy on Adam. June 30th, build A-bomb build a shelters now, report urges. July 7th, Red troops seize most of Austria's industries. July 12th, Adam bomb tests held success in two reports to President. The primary mission assigned to the 46th Reconnaissance Squadron during Project Nanook was to ascertain the extent of the Soviet threat in the Arctic. Prior to August 2, 1946, the free world was generally aware of only three flights that had flown over the polar cap since the birth of aviation. How many flights the Soviets had made or the extent of their polar navigation capabilities was anybody's guess. The intelligence communities of the free nations held strong suspicions that the Soviets had developed Arctic navigation capabilities, but no one knew for sure. With all the problems the Soviets were creating in Europe and the fact that they had, hadn't reduced their military strength since the war, coupled with the fact that our own military for, forces were in almost total disarray, the U.S. government and high military command were left with the conclusion that our mainland United States was in the most vulnerable situation it had faced in its history. And it was an unsettling situation, to say the least. If, however, the United States were to develop the capability of flying and navigating in the Arctic and could train enough bomber crews in Arctic operations, then our capability for counterattack might be enhanced to such a degree so as to provide a deterrent to a Soviet attack. But before the Soviet threat could either be assessed or eventually deterred, first American crews needed to learn the art of Arctic navi navigation. The first attempt to fly over the Polar Sea was made by a Swedish aeronaut named Andre in 1897. From then until 1946, there were very few flights made over the polar area. In 1925, Roald Amundsen with Lincoln Ellsworth flew to within 170 miles of the pole by air, and in 1926, flying the dirigible Norge, Amundsen succeeded jointly with Imbuter Noble of Italy in crossing from Spitsbergen, Norway, to Teller, Alaska, this being the first flight across the Polar Sea. 
Admiral Richard E. Byrd made the first flight over the geographic North Pole by airplane in 1926. Sir, Sir Hubert Wilkins and Ben Eilson made the first landings on the polar pack in 1927. About a year earlier, they flew from Point Barrow, Alaska to Spitsbergen over the magnetic North Pole. Actually, it says over the magnetic polar area. The flights made by Bird Ellsworth and Sir Hubert Wilkins provided about all the information available on actual, actual polar flights. These flights proved that aerial navigation was not an insuperable problem without the benefit of navigational aids. Yet to really make progress in polar navigation, there was a need for regular flights over the polar area. The 46th Reconnaissance Squadron was sent to Alaska in the summer of 1946 to begin a program of extensive polar exploration. Polar navigation know-how simply did not exist when the squadron was alerted for their project. Articles, pamphlets, or other material on the north had not been cataloged or library kept, therefore it was very difficult, not impossible, for navigators to familiarize themselves adequately for their mission. The navigators, when informed of their mission would be over the polar cap, began a widespread search for information on polar navigation. The complete lack of this material made them realize that this mission was not going to be routine. The material available dealt for the most part with subarctic operations and theories possibly adaptable to polar procedures. So many theories and each different about the most practical methods tended to frighten rather than enlighten them. It was known to crewmen that considerable time had been given to the study of the air navigation methods for polar regions. However, none of this information seemed to be available in June of 1946. Harold Gady had been commissioned by the Navy Department in 1944 to make a study of navigation knowledge at that time. His report was completed in early 1945 and was given limited distribution, but unfortunately, its extents remained totally unknown to the 46 squadron crew members despite their extensive research efforts. The navigators did have an opportunity to talk with the members of the B-29 Muscaf detachment at Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. It was through them and only them that the 46 crew members received any practical and usable information. Although Muscaf detachment had made only one flight, they were able to pass on what they had learned about grid navigation. With this limited background, the squadron started its polar operations. In the last half of July, the first 46 aircraft and crews began arriving at Ladfield and immediately thereafter started making orientation flights over the mainland of Alaska, the first of which was made on or about 21 July 1946. With support personnel, sufficient equipment, and crews in place at Ladfield, Major White arrived in Alaska on the 24th of July, 1946. In accordance with SAC directives, operations on the classified mission of Project Nanook were to officially commence. As the complement of the squadron arrived at Ladfield, eventually 19 experienced B-29 crews were given assignments to three flights, each assigned specific classified missions. Each flight was briefed separately. During his briefings on the flights, Major White gave the crews all the classified information he thought they needed in order to fulfill their mission. Major White stressed to the crews that if this top secret information were leaked, 
The crew involved probably wouldn't come back from their mission because there were numerous enemy agents in Fairbanks, and possibly even at Ladd Field, whose sole job was to obtain that information. He also pointed out that there were many military criminal investigation divisions personnel assigned undercover to the unit whose sole job was to report any security leaks. Get to know those around you in this room here today, he said. Nobody outside this room knows anything about what I'm telling you here today. Keep it that way. If you see anyone else in this room divulging such information anywhere, anytime to anybody else, stop them. Because your lives depend on it. I don't want you to talk about this even among yourselves outside this, outside of mission planning or debriefing. Major White added, If you hear anyone, and this includes members of other flights, talking about missions or asking you any questions that even hint at what we have discussed here today, whether in the mess hall, theater, the barracks, in a bar, or any place else downtown, make sure you can identify them and then report the incident to me any time of the day or night. The reason I'm telling you all this classified information is to keep you from speculating. Now you don't need to speculate. We have to stop all speculation because it is a thousand times worse from a security point of view than knowing what the facts are. It was during an Air Force Inspector General inspection a year later that Major White was questioned as to why the 46 had absolutely no known security leaks. He explained his conviction that only by sharing responsibility for secrecy could he hope to stop speculation and prevent a breach of security. The IG couldn't argue with success. On August 2, 1946, the initial long-range flight from Ladfield to areas in the Arctic was flown. This flight was over areas believed never to have been traversed before. Inasmuch as no Arctic or polar flight information was available, this mission took on additional importance as one of exploration and pioneering. Due to unexpected navigational and operational phenomena presented heretofore in theory only, this mission was considered extremely hazardous. Neither advanced weather information nor radar facilities were available. Emergency facilities were non-existent. Rescue aircraft were limited to other F-13s, B-29s, and squadron, whose crews themselves had not yet flown over the polar cap. During this flight of 12 hours and 5 minutes, 10 hours and 20 minutes were flown under icing conditions. Analytical studies of navigational procedures used on this flight served as the basis for further research in Arctic and polar areas. And then on the next page, there's a couple of, there's a photo of a couple of uh, the planes in Project Nanook, the F-13s, the converted B-29s. Chapter 8, Project Nanook's First Operational Mission. On August 2nd, 1946, the first operational flight of Project Nanook was flown out over the pole cap by Captain McIntyre and his crew accompanied by the squadron commander, who throughout the flight sat on a folding chair over the nose wheel well of the F-13 aircraft. This first flight over the polar cap was designed to investigate and test the theory of grid navigation over unknown area, over an unknown area that was, in all probability, without radar returns beyond the range of coastal areas. It was America's first trip into the Arctic unknown in over 20 years. The aircraft departed Ladfield, observing radio silence and crossed the coast 
at Point Vera with no information whatsoever on weather, winds, temperatures, cloud formation or heights, land masses, mountain ranges, and without any maps from any other grid charts that, other than that they had hand-drawn by the navigators for celestial navigation purposes, which were limited which were of limited use for celestial shots during daylight or twilight hours. They headed into an early uncharted area of the world. They headed into an entirely uncharted area of the world. The plane was to fly in a straight line midway between the coast of Siberia and the North Geographic Pole for several hours, and then make a 180 degree turn to return to the same line to intercept the coast again at Point Barrel. When the navigators and aircraft commander reached the point where they agreed they should turn back to Point Barrel, Major White interceded and instructed them to continue straight ahead for a few more hours, and he would tell them when to head back toward Point Barrel. Every 20 to 30 minutes thereafter, the navigators presented Major White with their case to make an immediate 180-degree turn, but with no success. After another couple hours of flying straight ahead into the unknown on instruments, at over 20,000 feet, Major White agreed to reverse direction. The navigators were apprehensive, and rightly so. They were only in the initial stages of proving the workability of the grid system of navigation. Several hours after the turn, the navigators became greatly concerned that the aircraft was heading out over the Pacific Ocean, and therefore made another case for an immediate 90-degree left turn to correct course. Major White responded by requesting that the navigators prove that they were heading out over the Pacific and that a turn was truly necessary, which they couldn't. Nevertheless, the navigators continued to rely on gut feeling that a 90-degree turn must be made immediately to preclude the necessity of ditching in or bailing out over the North Pacific Ocean. Major White again told the navigators that if they couldn't prove to him that they were heading out over the Pacific Ocean, then they would continue straight ahead, which they did. The last thing they needed was to be wandering aimlessly across the Arctic. A navigator made one more presentation about 30 minutes later, again without convincing evidence for a 90-degree left turn, so it, was, it too was denied. Every crew member with the radio knob nearby was tuning, turning it in search of radio signal of any kind. And less than an hour later, one crew member heard a radio transmission in English by another pilot talking to a ground radio. Captain McIntyre, the F-13 aircraft commander, discussed the matter with Major White, then broke radio silence to make a call on that frequency, and quickly received a reply. Captain McIntyre then called again asking the location where that aircraft took off from, which turned out to be Umiat. He then thanked the other pilot and went off the air. The navigators searched their maps of mainland Alaska to locate Umiat, and soon announced triumphantly that they couldn't be more than 50 miles off course if they could pick up a small craft's radio transmission to Umiat. Not long thereafter, the radio operator began to pick up radio signals from Fairbanks to Holon. The flight back to land was long enough for crew members to calm down, get their circulation going again, and get some color back in their faces and hands in time to climb out of that airplane and walk across the ramp at the Hangar 4 with an air of confidence that spoke louder than words. Everyone was watching these proud and nonchalant pioneers whose every move suggested that the flight had been a piece of cake. The totally unflappable iron-ass commander walked into the hangar to drop off his parachute and personal equipment, 
but instead of going to operations with the crew to share their new experiences, went to his quarters to shower and change his underwear. It was on this first flight into the Arctic unknown that Major White fully realized how inherently dangerous these polar missions would be. Navigational procedures would have to be developed, refined, and made routine among the air crews. He also decided that crew photographs could, would be taken prior to takeoff on all subsequent operational missions. Major White flew with each crew in their initial flight over the polar cap each time sitting in his usual position on the folding chair over the nose wheel well. He constantly monitored the aircraft's communication system, listening to crew coordination and their decision-making process. He knew that the confidence of each crew would be made or broken by the first flight over the Arctic unknown, and that the success or failure of these critical flights would be to a large extent determine whether the 46 would fulfill its mission. He also wanted each crew and crew member to know that he wouldn't ask any of them to do anything that he himself wouldn't do any day, at least any day that he wasn't hunting or fishing. As a result of this first flight of an American military crew into the polar regions to test the theory of grid navigation, the following personnel on this flight were awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross. Captain Richmond McIntyre. Captain William G. Katz, Captain Richter H. Alman, First Lieutenant Charles G. Hart, First Lieutenant Paul A. Warner, Master Sergeant Lawrence L. Yarbrough, Staff Sergeant Edward A. Drake, Staff Sergeant Rex R. Knack, and Sergeant Fred H. Hutchinson. Chapter 9. Maintenance Policy of the 46 After the 46 had gotten their flying operations organized, maintenance personnel would begin performing maintenance of the airplanes to which they were assigned as soon as the aircraft landed from each mission. More frequently than not, they would work on their aircraft continuously until it was in commission, if need be, around the clock. One of their motivations for doing this was that when their aircraft was ready for the next flight, the ground crews would have some off time, some time off. After short missions of 20 hours or less, it wasn't uncommon for air crews to join in the maintenance effort until the plane was back in commission. After long missions of 20 hours or more, the aircraft, the air crews would go to bed and come in the next day to do the debriefing and write up the reports. But if there was something wrong with the airplane that would take two or three days to repair, the air crews would often chip in and help the maintenance personnel. By handling aircraft maintenance in this manner, the end result was that practically all of the unit's aircraft were sitting on the ramp in commission. That wasn't the unusual situation within the rest of the Army Air Forces at that time. At most airfields, with shortage of maintenance personnel, a very low in-commission rate was about the best that most units could maintain. Adding to the problem was the Air Force policy of insisting on flying planes whenever they were flyable so that all rated personnel could get their flying time. Because there was considerable competition among air crews to fly those few flyable aircraft, this policy not only kept the in-commission rate low, 
but kept the maintenance personnel working all the time. Forty-six air crews were not having any such trouble getting their flying time because each of their usual missions were on average 20 to 25 hours in duration. The squadron's philosophy about maintenance was that it didn't cost any more money to have a plane on the ramp in commission than it did to have it on the ramp out of commission. Besides, if a plane were lost and down, the lives of the downed crew members would depend heavily upon how many planes could be launched for a search and rescue effort. The high-end commission rate enjoyed by the 46 seemed to rub people in air command and theater the wrong way. They said that if the 46 had such a high in commission rate, why wasn't the unit flying its airplanes more often? Major White responded by saying that the unit had a mission to do and they had figured out, based on their maintenance, manning, and capability, how much they could fly, and that's the number of missions they were flying. Major White added that if they had the crew members fly every in commission airplane in the squadron just because they were in commission, all the aircraft would end up sitting on the ramp with, with a 10% in commission rate like everybody else. If a plane went down under those circumstances, the crew would unquestionably be without hope of rescue because nobody could look for them, and the 10th rescue planes didn't have the range for rescues over the polar cap. During the first few months in Alaska, the unit did not yet have all the assigned F-13 aircraft from the depot at Oklahoma City. Of the aircraft deployed to the unit, many still did not have all of the required modifications, and aircraft would have to be rotated back to the depot over many months to have the modifications added. For example, although winter and the associated hazardous conditions were fast approaching, many of the F-13 still had the hydraulic Hamilton standard propellers while Curtis electric reversible props would be needed to maximize operational safety during landings and aborted takeoffs on wet or icy runways. Major White saw trips such as these to uh, the Oklahoma City uh, Depot as an excellent opportunity to rotate 46 personnel back to the States for 30 days of leave. He felt that this measure helped to boost morale and compensate for the earlier Air Force operational demands that did not allow leave prior to assignment to Alaska. Although only a minimal air crew was necessary for the flights to and from Okama, the planes often had numerous unit personnel aboard either going on or returning from leave. Throughout its stay in Alaska, the 46 never experienced an aircraft accident or loss due to maintenance problems. Two crash landings that were made on takeoff were initially attributed to engine failure due to climatic conditions. One of these happened in extremely cold weather and it was the belief that the engineering section that the because of the extreme cold the engines lost power and because of the heavy fuel load the takeoff could not be completed. Much knowledge was obtained from both of those accidents about cold weather operation and heavily loaded takeoffs. The paramount difference between Arctic engine operation and engine operation in temperate climates is that while keeping the engines cool was the normal procedure, the Arctic pilot was, has trouble getting the engines warm enough. Rules followed by pilots during their entire flying career, such as keeping cow flaps open for all ground operations, had to be discarded or disregarded by the Arctic pilot 
as cow flaps had to be closed to get maximum heat to the engines. It was also found that at very low temperatures, the cylinder head temperatures drop rather than rise during takeoff. Because the cooling effect of the cold air passing over the cooling fins is greater than the heat generated by the engines. Analysis of one F-13 that crashed in extremely cold weather with temperatures around minus 57 degrees Fahrenheit indicated that the carburetor air temperature and cylinder head temperatures were so low that proper burning of the fuel was not accomplished, resulting in the crash. Less than 24 hours after the December 11, 1946 F-13 crash, a C-54 transport aircraft designed to the cold weather test detachment and piloted by Colonel Dan Shanahan was taking off at minimum visibility conditions. As the plane got airborne, it gradually veered to the left and crashed into a large metal hangar adjacent to the far end of Ladfield runway. The aircraft ended up positioned nose up in the hangar without, with fuel leaking out of the wing tanks when Sergeant Vic Perry of the 46th Squadron entered the plane, crawled under the colonel's body, and propped him up so he could breathe until he was cut out of the wreckage. Although there was fuel on the ramp while blowtorches were being used to cut Colonel Shanahan loose from the aircraft and cut the steel girders off the metal hangar, of the metal hangar, there were no combustibles since at minus 57 degrees, the temperature was too cold for the aviation fuel to vaporize. The accident was attributed to insufficient warm-up time, of the vacuum instruments in the cold weather to assure their reliability. The crash also reaffirmed the hazardous nature of Arctic flying and the need for extraordinary precautions. And then there's a couple of pictures on the following page of the conditions at Ladfield. And that's it. That's chapters 7, 8, and 9. Uh, thanks again for joining us. We're going to keep these episodes pretty sweet and short like this. Um, I'm trying to do more of them as I can. Um, <clears throat> step up the production rate as it were anyway. And I know, I know that the, the more interesting chapters are later on. At least in my opinion. You know, I think it was like chapter 27 or where they start talking about the magnetic anomalies and the catastrophe. And you know... I'd like to read the book chapter by chapter so I can get a sense of like where it's going and what was happening and that led up to their discovery of those things. But I'm also like, let's just get to the good stuff. <laughs> I don't know if you guys have an opinion or not about how it should go or if I should skip to the whatever the important parts are. If not more. That's the wrong word, actually. It's not that they're more important. Uh, I would say that they would be more interesting. And one of the reasons why I'm reading this book is for those chapters where they're talking about things that I'm interested in. If you listen to season one, um, the Adam and Eve story by Chan Thomas, you know, uh, you, you, you're familiar with that. You know, chapter 27 is the terrestrial magnetism studies. And chapter 28 is the clues to a cataclysm. Chapter 29 is the Polar Wanderer, and Chapter 30 is the Flip of the Earth. I mean, sure, the General Eisenhower visit, the Beacon Hill crash, the winter maintenance stuff, all is important and probably really interesting to learn. But I'm of the mind to just get to the good stuff. And I'd love to know your thoughts. 
So hit me up on Twitter. Um, it's at, oh gosh, what is my Twitter handle? <laughs> I think I mentioned it before, uh, and I can't believe that I can't remember it right now, but look at my anchor page in the description of this podcast. I'll, I'll list it there, uh, of what, what the, what the Twitter handle is. And, um, oh, it's at underscore prep. Sorry. It's at age underscore prep at age underscore prep um so if you have an opinion about continuing to read on and on and on till till we get to those chapters that i mentioned let me know um i'd love to know if you think i should just get to the good stuff actually here's what i'm gonna do if nobody gets back to me on my twitter page and says hey read all the chapters so we you know before you get to that stuff then i'm just gonna skip to that chapter 27 and read those parts so if you want to hear the rest of it let me know if i don't hear from anybody i'm going to skip to chapter 27 and uh, i'll do that recording in five days from now well actually it'll probably have to be six in six days from now so you have six days from today to let me know at age underscore prep thanks for listening thanks for listening guys i really appreciate it um, you know, I look at the anchor stats and there's people from all over the world listening. Hello. Thank you. I appreciate you tuning in. If you find this stuff interesting, if you have suggestions, let me know. Um, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. The 46 system worked the way it was being run. SAC knew about it and there was no logical reason for changing the policy. It turned out that after working straight through to get planes in commission, <clears throat> mainly maintenance personnel often had little to do until the plane came back for its, from its next mission. Major White didn't want the personnel just sitting around the hangar, so he encouraged them to get involved in some sort of recreational activity like hunting or fishing, not to mention how it would be an inexpensive way to stock their food larders. In the lower 48th, a pound of hamburger cost about 25 cents, but in Alaska it costs about a dollar. Most food in Alaska costs three to four times as much as in the States because it had to be shipped or flown in. With this in mind, eight or nine hundred pounds of moose meat worth a dollar a pound was not only a good supplement to the diet, it was money in the bank, especially to those making only a few hundred dollars a month. During the wintertime, once it was butchered, ground, wrapped, and quick frozen, it could be put in a window box for storage. One could easily minimize food bills this way, with fish in the summertime and wild game in the winter. Fish and game were plentiful in Alaska, and hunting and fishing provided a great antidote to boredom. <laughs>